I'm Joe Jessup, and you're listening to Gospel Tangents. The best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to have Joe Jessup on the show. He's the LDS grandson of famous polygamous leader Ruin Allred. He's also written a chapter in the uh, volume three of The Persistence of Polygamy. So you can check out his chapter. We'll talk a little bit about that and uh, learn more about the Apostolic United Brethren. I consider Joe, even though he's LDS, uh, kind of an insider because he grew up in, in the church. And so we're going to learn a lot about the race ban um, and a lot of about how polygamy started with uh, the eight-hour meeting and the vision of John Taylor and a lot of amazing stuff. So you won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. All right, well, welcome to Gospel Tangents. I am really excited to have another expert on polygamy. We don't talk about polygamy enough here on, on Gospel Tangents, apparently. So anyway, we've got the grandson of a famous Allred. Can you tell us who you are and who your grandfather was? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my name is Joe Jessup. My full name is Joseph Lyman Jessup. Um, and I have two polygamous grandfathers on both sides on my father's side and my uh, mother's side. On my mother's side, well, let's start with father's side because mother's side's a little bit more famous. Uh, on the father's side is Joseph Lyman Jessup. Uh, and on the, uh, my mother's side is Rulin Clark Allred. So, and as some people know, or probably most people know, he was the polygamous leader of the AUB group or quote unquote, the all red group during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and then was shot and killed in 1977 in his office in, I think it was Murray, right off, off of State Street. So that was my grandfather. I don't have, I don't have any memories of him, very few memories of him. He died uh, when I was five. I remember going to his funeral. That's really about it. And I hate to do this, but that was 1978, if I remember right? 70. Sorry. When he, the, when he was shot? Yeah, so he was shot in, oh my gosh, I thought it was 77, because oh, I, was five, I was five years old. It was, yeah, it was 77. Okay. So, and, and now, now that you ring my bell a little bit, I remember, uh, the way I remember it is because he was killed uh, a year before the 1978 black, so black revelation. Oh, okay, okay. Now, I've always... <clears throat> Wanted to get an expert on, and and it's really for some. Well, I, I tried Cody Brown first, you know. I was shooting for the big leagues, um, <laughs> and uh, he his contract wouldn't let him do it yet. So sure. come on, hurry up and get off that stupid show. So you went for the minor leagues, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's been really hard to find somebody like an AUB expert, and so I'm I'm excited to have the grandson of Rulin Allred. That that's really exciting. So how many do you know? How many grandchildren he had? Oh, I don't have a calculator handy, um, but it's, I mean, my, to give you an idea. How, my, many, how many wives did he have? Oh, he had at least seven okay. and possibly a few more. Um, but to give you an idea, my dad had 35 kids. And when we did a little reunion just before my dad passed away seven, eight years ago, we had a reunion and just, our, and dad had 195 offspring. Your dad? My dad. Holy cow. So, uh, Rulin, Rulin Allred, oh my gosh, I can't even begin to imagine. I'm trying what, to remember, your dad had five wives? Uh, uh, yes. In, in throughout, the, throughout the span of his life, yes, he had five wives, okay. but never had more than 
three, three at one time. Because yeah, a couple of them died, I don't remember. Yeah, so. one died and one left. Okay. So um, so I've always been curious about the structure. I've had Ann Wilde on, and um, she talked about the Council of Friends. Do you guys have, like, apostles? Are you set up like the LDS Church? or Sort of. Um, and so, and, and maybe point of clarification is I'm not actually part of the AUB group anymore. anymore. Not that I'm, a, I'm not ashamed to say that I associate with them and have great friends and great associates and family. I stay very close to my family and friends. Um, but uh, so the, the AUB group is set up similar to the LDS church. They're, they really, I always describe it as the AUB group kind of tried to stay underneath the eaves <laughs> of, the, of the church's roof. They were never really wanted. They were kicked outside, but tried to kind of hug close to the, to the eaves and stay out, uh, uh, stay out of the, the, the big storms. And so they, they set up in the 1920s uh, under the direction of Lauren Woolley, uh, what was called the Council of Friends, Council or Council of Seven Friends, um, and they believed that uh, he, Lauren Woolley set up what it was were called High Priest Apostles, meaning kind of basically the highest ordinate, ordination you can have, even more so than a general authority quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Um, aren't, so, aren't LDS apostles high priests? Well, the, yes, they are high priests. So there's a there's kind of a unique distinction there because in the AUB group they they would be set up as what is called a high priest apostle like that's the actual which is higher than our apostles yeah the apostles. so yes correct so um, but for just kind of regular day to day terminology we we were when I was growing up we really didn't refer to them as apostles. Nobody said, oh, that's Apostle Jessup or Apostle Allred or anything like that. They were re referred to as council members. And for the most part, that still holds true today. They, so do they just have seven apostles then? Yes. Okay. Um, and then that, that number has varied over the years. Um, it's, it's winnowed down to one or two and then ballooned to as many as 10 or 12 at times. But uh, it was, uh, Lauren Woolley set it up after what he believed was uh, a quorum within a quorum. Uh, he Lauren Woolley actually taught that even in the early days of the church that there was a smaller quorum, a, a leadership call, quorum, if you will, and that men were part of that. If you were a, 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 an apostle, that you, were, you might also be part of the quorum of the seven or the... the Council of Friends. So when he set that up in the 1920s, that council, Lauren really, sorry, Lauren Woolley really is everything in polygamy, everything in modern day polygamy, all of the offshoot groups, and there's a few that have kind of sprung up on their own, but uh, for the most part, all of the, the polygamist offshoot groups, what are known as fundamentalists, um, will trace their priesthood lineage right through Lauren Woolley. It all stems from there, and then, and of course, it branches out quite broad from from Lauren Wool. Well, it's funny that we call it the All Red Group. Shouldn't it be called the Woolly Group then? <laughs> the Well, yeah, a, a Wooliite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, the funny thing about fundamentalism is they're always full of nicknames. 
at least the way I grew up. Everything's a nickname. Uh, in my town of Pinesdale, where I grew up, there were there were street names, but nobody ever called them by their street name. It was Bud's Hill or Burt's Field or the Blue Building or the you know things like that. So, so fundamentalists have kind of taken on nicknames and and they kind of mirror the nickname of whoever's kind of at the top. And for a lot of years, because of Rulon Allred being the guy and the most prominent, and uh, they've, they kind of took on his name as the All Red Group. And he helped expand the group quite a bit in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And so that's why they kind of took on that persona. They're still known as the All Red Group, but that name is fading. You, you don't hear that quite as much as you used to um, because some different leadership has Lemoyne Jensen... Uh, Lynn Thompson and now Dave Watson, and so you, you know, they're not called the Watson Group or the the All Red Group is a nickname um, that Did has kind serve, of stuck with them. He served a lot longer than Lauren Woolley. Yeah, he, he, well, you know, Lauren Woolley <clears throat> served as a. That's kind of an interesting way of putting it because when Lauren Woolley, when he started implementing the Council of the Friends in the late 1920s and then passed away, I believe, in 32. Um, the, the Council of Friends then went through a series of leadership from uh, John Y. Barlow to Joseph Musser and then in, and Joseph Musser in the 1950s, and then that, they split. There, in 1951, what we, what we recognize in our history, in the polygamous history, we call that the 51 split. And, that, and uh, they split over di different and varying views of leadership. Joseph Musser being at the top, and then uh, the rest of the council below him uh, kind of having different views on marriage, different views on doctrine, and he called Rulon Allred, this is in the early 50s, he called Rulon Allred to the council, and the council didn't support him. D didn't support Rulon? Didn't support Rulon being called to the council. Um, for whatever reason, he was a little bit of a, a lightning rod. Some people felt that he was, as a doctor, that he had ingratiated himself into the goodwill of Joseph Musser, who was in his dying days, latter days. And uh, they didn't support Joseph Musser's call for Rulon Allred. Uh, and so Joseph Musser essentially shrugged them off <laughs> so I'm and, bringing them and on said, anyway. and said, I'm bringing them on anyway, and and because he kind of didn't just bring him on, he brought him on as like his second elder, so he kind of did a little hop, skip, and a jump above, over everybody else, and so the council was supposed to be set up under the the original tenets of that council of friends was supposed to be set up much like what the LDS Church is, where you've got seniority based on ordination and that that would be the most senior member would become the head, what they call the head of the council of the priesthood head uh, and that's the way it was supposed to happen you wouldn't call him a prophet though or would you well, that's a good question that's a you know we could be here for days talking about that one rick um, because depending on who you who you talk to they would say, yeah, most definitely a prophet. And others would say, no, 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 no. Just, I'm just the head. He's just the head of an organization, of a quorum. And it's, it's the quorum, it's the council that leads, and he's just the head of that council 
for purposes so even, of, yeah. There's a difference of opinion even among members then? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. To, this is one of the things, and I presented this at MHA in St. George years ago. Um, one, of the, one of the big misconceptions out there is that when you bump into a fundamentalist group of people, that they're all the same. <laughs> they're not. They're, they're anything but, um, well, from the outside, you say, okay, well, they're polygamous, and they might believe in and adhere to a certain priesthood lineage, uh, yet on the inside, they're they're very much different and have different views on doctrine and uh, philosophy and theology and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, so some people would most definitely call the head of the council a prophet or president, and some people would refer to them as that. Uh, according to my mom, uh, her dad, Rulon Allred, was never comfortable with that and preferred that people never wouldn't wouldn't refer to him as that. But in the last 10 to 15, 20 years, Rick, that has changed. So they're much more comfortable and open about this is our prophet. He's he's the one on he's the one man on the earth that holds all of the priesthood keys. Let's jump back to this priesthood split then. You said there's 51 split. So how did that split go? So the AUB was one? So, yeah. And it, FLDS is the other? Is yeah, that so that's a, that's, a real, that's, a, that's a really easy way to kind of view it, is how it, that's the way it ends up. At the time, it was not necessarily that, that simple. So what you had, you kind of had a geographical and a theological split. Because you had, excuse me, in the 1920s and 30s, as polygamy was moving outside the church, yet still kind of in the church, one of the things that we let... Most people think that, that polygamy ended in 1890. Right. <laughs> it didn't. Right. And it couldn't have. Quite frankly, how do you do that? Just boom, stop, and everybody's... I mean, there's lots of polygamous families out there. Right. And so those people had to... There had to be this era... 10, 15, 20 years, a generation or so for that to kind of start to move away. Um, and so as some of those polygamists, most of those early polygamists were just members of local wards. Yeah. So when so they, even after 1890, they could still live with their wives openly. Sure. And it's just like, just don't take any more. Yeah, just don't take any more. And it was kind of on the hush-hush and the down low. Everybody knew, but for the most part, during, you know, from 1890 to the the. 1920s really probably the grant administration is when the church kind of gets pretty it's serious, serious yeah. about saying no more you know right. you're you're kind of i don't want to i don't want to say the the i don't, I don't want to miss represent the word because yeah. rooting out it might be a little bit strong but well, there were certainly members of the church and even leading members of the church were that were active in saying let's Get rid of this <laughs> barnacle <laughs> on the side of the boat, maybe you know. Um, and, and so they did, and they started getting excommunicated in the 1920s and 30s. A few of them started getting excommunicated earlier than that, as we as we know, a couple of apostles were excommunicated in the early 1900s. Yeah, 1906, I believe. Mm -hmm. yeah. Taylor and Cowley, and um, so there's there's some of that even in right in the in the you know, higher-ups of the church leadership. So as they started to move out, as polygamists started to move out, they started to coalesce underneath the leadership of Lauren Woolley, 
who claimed to have authority dating back to 1886. It was called the eight, in the fundamentalist movement, you'd call that the 86 revelation. Um, and so he, he brought together polygamists that kind of coalesced under him, set up a council, and people started coming together, started congregating, if you will, in the 1920s and 30s. Now, did he have a vision or anything to become the leader, or was it just more of a self-proclaimed thing? Or? So, okay, so now, now correct me, stop me if I'm telling things that are not, that maybe people don't know. I'm, I, sometimes I say things that maybe I think, assume that people know. Well, you know, we've talked about polygamy a lot in here, and maybe we should make sure, for those who are new listeners, you have the 1890 Manifesto, mm-hmm. and then we have the 1904 Reed Smoot hearings, mm-hmm. which leads to the second Manifesto, uh-huh. and then we find out that some apostles are still doing it. Mm-hmm. Wink, um, wink, wink, nod, nod. And so we excommunicate John Taylor, the son of John Taylor, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and maybe we should mention, the, the you mentioned the 1886 revelation, so there's an uncanonized revelation in 1886 by President John Taylor... There's a John Taylor and a John W. John W. is the son, right? Do I have that right? Yes, yes, yes. So John Taylor, the dad, Mm -hmm. has this 1886 revelation that basically says polygamy will never leave the earth, and I'm going to start a kind of an underground council just in case to keep Mm -hmm. it to keep it alive, so it will never die, right? And that is so. It's this from a historical perspective. This is fascinating and cool. It's really fun to. There's a lot of meat on the bone. Let's call it, you know, you can chew in a lot of different places. <laughs> so 1890, as you mentioned, is the, is the official uh, manifesto. manifesto. If, you, if you back up four years, fundamentalists uh, get their start in 1886 underneath John Taylor. And, and so... From you know, what I understand, I don't think anybody disputes... Like, the LDS don't recognize the revelation, but nobody disputes that that's John Taylor's handwriting, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yes, yes, correct. So, but what, what most people don't know, and even historians in the church will, will talk about this, they'll, they'll talk about that, quote-unquote, the 86th revelation where uh, John Taylor says he's never, you know, I'm not going to take this from the earth. Right. That's kind of, I don't, I don't want to call it official, it's kind of officially unofficial that... That that is that's an actual document in his handwriting that was found by his son on his desk and you know things like that. And the LDS Church has this, but they don't yes, let a lot correct. of people see it. Yeah, in the historical <laughs> record, well, uh, people have seen it, and yeah. it is there. To you can read it and you can find it. Where fundamentalists go with this, however, is there's a whole nother backstory. There's the story you and I are talking about right now of this 1886 revelation. And then there's a backstory where Lauren Woolley is inserted. Oh, yeah. Was, and he, so, was he a witness of the 1886 so, revelation? Yes, correct. So Lauren Woolley was a male, essentially he's a mailman. He's a runner, running mail around to the general authorities and other things like that, other people like that. And he's, he's his father, uh, John Woolley, is good friends with John Taylor. And so uh, John Taylor was a regular guest at the Woolley Farm in Farmington, um, up uh, north of the point of the mountain. And, and so what happens is, is he shows up one time in September of 1886. He shows up to deliver the mail. 
and then is asked to stand guard outside of John Taylor's room. And uh, John Taylor, as he stands out in the hallway, he starts to notice a glow in the room. And he starts to hear voices. This is Lauren Woolley, yes. And uh, he starts to see a, a glow coming from underneath the door. And then he's like, wait a second. I don't remember anybody going in there. And he goes out and checks the windows and every, you know, like, wow, how the heck is anybody in there? And he gets in closer and then realizes that there's voices in there. there. There are three people in there conversing. And at that point, he essentially decides to leave it alone. But then asks John Taylor when he comes out in the morning. He's, this is like an eight-hour meeting, right? So that's coming. So John Taylor comes out in the morning, according to Lauren Woolley, in a kind of a glow. And uh, Lauren Woolley says, who was in there with you last night? And he said, well, I, was, I spent most of the night with Joseph Smith, with the prophet Joseph Smith. And he says, well, I heard three voices. And he says, who is that third voice? And he said, well, I think you know who that third voice was. That was your Savior. And so then that day, Lauren Woolley, they have what is called the eight-hour meeting, where Lauren Woolley then sets up according to direction of Joseph Smith and Jesus Christ uh, alternate priesthood authority outside the church. outside the auspices of the church outside uh, of its direction should the need arise which it did four years which later. it did four years later <laughs> to carry on and to make sure, and the covenant was to make sure that a year did not go by where children were not born into the new and everlasting covenant of celestial plural marriage until the Savior returned. And that they would have the ability to then perpetuate that authority down through the generations. And so this is kind of why Lauren becomes head of the movement. Yes, this is why Lauren becomes head of the movement, because in the 1920s he starts telling this story. Now, I, I'm going to get myself in a lot of trouble here, Rick. I'm going to be in so much hot water, you're not even going to understand. Um, I, I, tell you, I tell you that story from the polygamous perspective. Right. That's the story. That's what I want. That's the story I grew up with. That story is insanely hard to corroborate right. in the historical record. Because of the 30-year gap, right? Because there's a 30-year gap. They're really, Lauren Woolley doesn't start talking about it until pretty much all of the men who were supposedly on that first council of seven in 86, they're all gone. They're all dead except for his father. And so then he, then he starts talking about it and starts... I, I one time was given a presentation uh, to... A, a bunch of people, a group in Pinesdale in the AUB, and I, I called it the alleged 1886 revelation. And oh, boy, did I ever catch flag for that. Um, but and, and the way I responded in front of this group of people who were ready to have pitchforks for me, that, I'm just kidding, they didn't have pitchforks, but they were, they were not happy with me. Uh, as I said, well, isn't Joseph Smith's first vision alleged right right 
Um, so really what the 1886 revelation is, and you, you can track down polygamists who would refute me and probably come up with some journal entries from their great-grandfather or their great-great-grandmother who was there or who heard about it firsthand. You know, there's a lot of those types of things. Um, but really, um, it's not much in the historical record, and it's a faith story. It's a faith story. Um, in polygamy, it's one of those stories that you, if somebody's getting ready to join the LDS church and they're working with the missionaries, what do the missionaries ask them to do about to, to the Book of Mormon? What's the, what's the, the promise of Moroni? <laughs> right? It's no different in polygamy. What you do is you study out and read the, the polygamous literature and then you pray about it and you... Better get the right answer. Yeah, you, 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 yeah, you get a, you get a testimony. You either get a testimony or you don't, or you don't get a testimony of it. And so the the polygamous groups have most definitely have a testimony of that 1886 revelation and eight hour con and subsequent eight hour meeting, because that everything hinges on that. If that didn't happen, they don't exist. If that didn't happen, they don't have any legitimacy whatsoever. So every that has to ha that so has that's to like have happened. That's like the second vision, right? <laughs> yeah, re in, in a way, it really is. Yeah. To a polygamist, that absolutely is the second vision, because you don't live polygamy outside the auspices of priesthood authority. You that that's adultery. Right. So you you better you better be pretty darn convicted on your faith testimony that Lauren Woolley is telling the is truth. Telling the truth. <laughs> and so that's, and, and, then, and then there's a gap. And, and there's lots of things that happen in there, and we, you know, we don't have enough, there's not enough time in, in the year to talk about all of those things that happen in there. But essentially by the 1920s, Lauren Woolley has gathered a, a, a new council. He's called men like John Y. Barlow, and uh, J. Leslie Broadbent and Joseph Musser and, Z and uh, oh, some of the names are, are leaving me right now. Um, but those men start to coalesce around him and they, they establish an organization, a council, a priesthood organization to perpetuate the, the, the promise and the covenant from 1886. And then Lauren Woolley dies in 32, I believe it's 32 when Lauren Willie dies. And, and then J. Leslie Broadbent takes over, but he's, he's elderly as well. He only, really only held that position for about six, seven months before he passes away. And then it's John Y. Barlow and Joseph Musser that kind of, sort of kind of share leadership, if you will. But John Y. Barlow is, the mo is more senior to Joseph Musser, but Joseph Musser is a little bit more... Maybe charismatic might be a good way to, to put that. A little more um, people-oriented. Um, and so people begin to kind of wonder if it's Joseph Musser or if it's uh, John Y. Barlow who is the head. And there's, there's a little bit of a competition there, honestly. If you look at the historical records and the journals, there's a little bit of vying for who, who is who's head who, honcho. Who's head honcho. And even Joseph Musser recognizes John Y. Barlow as most senior, but a lot of people recognize Joseph Musser as kind of the spiritual head. And then that's when I was coming back full circle. There starts to be this geographical split because so many of the polygamists end up moving and 
down southern Utah, on the border of southern Utah and Arizona. And that's where a lot of the council is as well, the leading members of the council. And then Joseph Musser and, some, and one or two other members of the council are up here in the Salt Lake Valley. And in, uh, John Y. Barlow and Joseph Musser started to have some differences in opinion and theology and direction and administration and you know, things like that. Uh, the way it's taught in the AUB group is that most of those differences surrounded uh, the way somebody entered polygamy. As in, there was, a, there was a philosophical difference between are you assigned and called to live polygamy and therefore given a bride or assigned women assigned to like, men. Like an arranged marriage. Like an arranged marriage. Or is it something that you enter into much more like a courtship and deciding who you fall in love with if you're compatible and things like that. Uh, and the way it's taught in the AUB group is that that's, that's really where the split theologically starts to happen. So the FLDS are more like, let's do yeah, the, so, the, the yeah, so in the Yeah, so in the 50s when Joseph Musser pulls Rulin Allred into the, into the council, he pulls him in specifically because of those reasons as he's looking for support of kind of the, the choosing way rather than the assigning way. And they split over that. The, group, the, the polygamous group splits. Um, and it's a pretty ugly split. You know, families are broken up. Um, brothers and sisters are split completely. And husbands and wives are even torn as far as where their allegiances are. So the bulk of the council under the direction of Leroy Johnston, he becomes the new head of the council for this new group, Joseph Musser shrugs off the old council and calls a new council, Joseph Lyman Jessup, my grandfather on my uh, dad's side, uh, Rulin Allred, um, Joe Thompson, Marvin Allred, um, Zitting, Kelch, there's a couple others in there that I'm, that I'm kind of blanking on right now, but essentially calls a, a brand new council um, and they it, they split they they go their separate ways and and much like the 1890 manifesto it's not a clean break and a split it's families over the, during the 1950s there's families that are kind of waffling back and forth of who they're yeah who they're going to follow and it's split it's split spiritually it's also split geographically in some ways it's not that the that all of them were in St. George, but a, a, there was a good-sized community down there in the Short Creek area. Um, there's also a good-sized community up here. But eventually, that becomes the FLDS group. Now, officially, it doesn't become the FLDS group. I don't think it becomes officially until the eight, 1980s. Yeah, 1984, I think. Yeah. Um, and the AUB group doesn't officially become the AUB group, the Apostolic United Brethren. It does not become that until... 70s or 80s as well. Those those kind of become the official names. Really, what it, during the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s, it was known as everything is known as the Short Creek Group and the All Red Group. That's what because that's two, when the split basically yeah. happened, right? Those were the two groups, and and my grandfather being the head of the All Red Group, and and he was the head of that because Joseph Musser dies shortly after 51 or 52. 
uh, somewhere in there, I might have that date uh, off a little bit, but um, he dies fairly shortly after the new council. He'd had a stroke anyway earlier. He was under the care of Rulin Allred as a, as a, physi a physician anyway. And so that's how the Allred group kind of emerges. And, and Rulin Allred is a very charismatic man. He's a visionary man. Um, and he is, he's a people's person. He's very personable. He, I mean, if he were to have walked in the room right here, you know, we'd, oh my gosh, you know, let's stand up and shake his hand and sit down and talk, and you'd talk hunting and fishing and gospel and politics and all of that kind of. He's very, very charismatic, and a lot of people flock to him. Many people out of the church flock to him, um, and left the church in the in the '60s and '70s to go join the all red polygamous movement because they felt like he was a prophet of God, living the fullness of the gospel. Okay, so there's been a... Okay, so let's, let's go back with our timeline. So we've got the 1886 revelation, the 1890 manifesto. We don't do polygamy, wink, wink, but, you know, <laughs> we'll still... Unless you're in Mexico or yeah. unless you're in Canada. Yeah. Well, I understand Mitt Romney... Or unless you go out on a ship and get married on a ship in international waters. <laughs> that happened a couple of times. Because oh, <laughs> yeah. Mitt Romney's ancestors go back to Mexico, uh -huh. would that be... I mean, I guess prior to 1950 or 51 or whatever, before the split, you guys were all just part of the, the kind of the fundamentalist group, right? Mm -hmm. You really didn't have a name. Yeah, there's... It's yeah. kind of a shadow work, kind of like the Danites, a shadow organization. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Only you weren't violent. No, yeah, yeah that, that's a, that is important. Yeah. They're very non-violent. Right, right. So... So Mitt Romney would date back to this AUB FLDS time. His grandparents, right? His grandparents. Well, so not even he, he, the the Romney faction. Mitt Romney's grandparents would date back to post manifesto time. Yes, but but to say that there was an AUB FLDS group in the early 1900s would be a complete misrepresentation. Anachronistic, we would say. Yeah, the, it, yeah, exactly. It just it doesn't exist. There are polygamists that have been called by members of the leading brethren to go to Mexico and live polygamy. My great-grandfather, Byron Harvey Allred, was actually uh, one of those. He went to Mexico to live polygamy, called by... I can't remember exactly who, but it was one of the leading brethren. You know, as um, men and women and families were called out of the United States to go and continue living outside of the, you know, either in Canada or in Mexico. And so, so the the Mormons in Utah, or sorry, the Mormons that are in Mexico are made up of a little bit of a hodgepodge of some polygamists and some non-polygamists. The Romneys being in that group of Mormon polygamists that were living down there. Okay. So, 1904, we have the Reed Smoot hearings, and they're trying to decide well, Reed's not a polygamist, but these other apostles are, mm -hmm. and we don't really want to see them. And so, Joseph F. Smith comes out and says, okay. Second Manifesto, we're really going to do it, not do it anymore. We're serious about it now. And now in 1906, when John W. Taylor and, is it Matthew or Matthias Cowley? Matthias Cowley. Matthias Cowley, two apostles, 
did they just resign or excommunicated or? Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> yeah, they're kicked out somehow or resigned or whatever. Um, and then David O. McKay comes in, a non-polygamist. He's one of the replacements. I know mm -hmm. that. Um, and so then Joseph F. Smith dies in 1918 from the Spanish flu. Wow, who's next after that? Is it, Grant. It is Grant. Mm -hmm. Well, so Grant was right then. And so Grant, even though he was a polygamist, he's like, we got to stop this. This is going to cause us grief. And so he kind of goes after the polygamists in the 20s, mm -hmm. and that's when Lauren Woolley kind of says, come follow me, right? Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, you've kind of got a, a generalization, an umbrella of, or a framework of what kind of starts to happen. Okay. okay. And so in the 1920s, they start to coalesce a little bit. They start to come out of the church because they're, because somebody's saying, hey, Brother Jessup or Brother Allred is still living polygamy, or you know, so, or Brother Thompson or Brother Musser, or whoever it is, you know, their family's still living polygamy and they're still coming to the ward, and the church is kind of trying to get rid of them. It's been forty and, years. <laughs> yes, and and they're trying to for political reasons too. Like, hey, you know, they're trying to show the, the U.S. government, no, seriously, we're not doing this anymore. We really aren't. In fact, we're not just not condoning it. We're actually excommunicating them. Right, and so that's 1933, the third manifesto, I believe. Well, yeah, yeah, really, is. yeah, there's, how many manifestos are there? I'm not sure exactly. Three, three is, my, <laughs> is my number, so. So, yeah, the church comes out and really kind of goes goes after them. You know, I, I wrote about this in, uh, in that chapter that I presented, or that it, part of the persistence of polygamy. It's really... Volume three, right? Yes. It's really kind of an ironic twist of fate. Now, I'm, I'm for... For the record, I'm active LDS. Uh, I left the AUB group when I was 19 years old and joined the LDS church. And uh, I'm active and uh, I really enjoy where I'm at. But I'm also, I also keep my eyes wide open and I, <laughs> and I study and I read and all that kind of stuff. One of the, one of the things that I find, it's, an, it's very ironic that what the church did to the polygamists in the 1930s and 40s and 50s even, because uh, they had they had just come out of the late 1880s of the anti-bigamy acts and the uh, you know and all and the Supreme Court rulings and all that kind of stuff where they were getting chased down. And John Taylor was on the run. Right. I mean, he John died Taylor. On the run, right? That's exactly right. He served his as his his tenure as president <laughs> president and prophet of the church. For the most part, on the run. I want to say he died in Kaysville. Does that sound right to you? It sounds, it sounds right. I think, here's the interesting thing. I don't really have any polygamous ancestry, mm -hmm. but I have some cousins. And anyway, one of John Taylor's last wife, I want to say her name was Josephine Rouchet. I might have that wrong. But they're from Kaysville. Okay. And I have a friend that was like, that's where John Kaler was hiding in that house right there. Uh. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I don't know if he died in that house, or, but I, I think it was in Kaysville or Centerville or somewhere around there. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I think I said Farmington, but you're... They're all close to each other. Yeah, they're all somewhere right in there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, a re it's a really interesting thing, a little uh, flip-flop 
if you will, of the church being persecuted. And then becoming the persecutor. And then becoming the persecutor. And we can have arguments all day long about whether they should be excommunicated or not. And if that's church policy, maybe they should be excommunicated. That's fine. Um, but I, I find that kind of ironic that the, the persecuted then flips the tables. And during the 19, for, you know, for a 20, 30 year period of time, they, they really went after and worked with FBI and local law enforcement to really, really root them out. So a lot of people say because of uh, Grant, Heber J. Grant, mm -hmm. I almost said George Albert Smith, <laughs> Heber J. Grant's such vocal opposition, that's what created fundamentalism. Would you agree with that? that or, or it was bound to happen and somebody had to was, do it? It was bound to happen and it was happening before Grant. Okay. Um, but uh, President Grant didn't help it. <laughs> He certainly drove it underground, um, and it was ha it was going to happen anyway. But one of the things that fundamentalists need, one of the things that fundamentalists need is they need. This will come maybe oh, I might not be too articulate in saying this, but they need opposition. A snowball needs to be packed. Okay. Um, and. Uh, President Grant provided the packing. Uh, it helped. It helped for sure because they had somebody. You know, President Grant is not a, 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 he's not talked about in kind terms among polygamous in polygamous circles. He's just not. Um, they and and so that that's a that's kind of a rough period for sure. You know, my. In 1945, they, I mean, the polygamous um, homes are raided right. by s state police. My dad remembers it. Mm -hmm. I talk about that in my chapter. My dad remembers waking up to police officers rummaging through drawers and pulling books out of bookcases and carting his dad off in his pajamas. I mean, and, and then those polygamous leaders spend roughly close to a year in prison and before they sign their own manifesto <laughs> to say, well, all but two, um, sign it and say, we'll, we'll, we'll stop living polygamy. We will no longer do this if you'll let us out of jail. And, of course, then they got let out of jail and immediately went back to living polygamy. <laughs> but, but that's where uh, Rulin Allred kind of, that's where he kind of enters the scene there in, those, in the late 1930s and the uh, 1940s. His, he's the son of a polygamist, Byron Harvey Allred, uh, and he actually tries to convince his dad that he's wrong for hanging out with these polygamists. He thinks, uh, he really, in a series of letters, uh, he tries to convince his dad that he's wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be going down this road. You shouldn't be supporting these men, and, and he kind of <laughs> merges and ends up becoming probably the most prominent, historically prominent, polygamous leader of all of them. So if you want, if you want a fascinating history, you need to interview Eric Rogers about uh, Rulon Allred's first marriage, oh. uh, Catherine. I and, know, I've, I've been having a feeling I need to talk to him. Uh, yeah, you want to, it's a really fascinating story, and he's, he probably knows more about it than anybody. He's he's dug in and around those journals and letters more than anybody. It's a really fascinating story.
Well, cool. So, uh, how did do we do you know how the LeBaron group came about this? Because they're important in this story too. <laughs> you know, I did, here's what's funny, Rick. I sort of a side story. Several years ago, um, and I don't I don't remember when, I was asked to come. I was asked by the local state president up there in Montana because they they were starting to see a little bit of an influx of polygamous people who were looking to join the LDS church. Uh, when I joined the LDS church in the early 90s, I don't want to say I was a trailblazer because I'm not. I'm not trying to set myself up that in that way at all. But I was relatively new and alone in joining the LDS church from the all-red group. But then it start, there started to be a slow trickle in, in the late 90s and early 2000s. You know, here and there a person would join the church again and, uh, and leave the group. And so the, the local wards up there in Montana were kind of dealing with that. So they actually uh, called me and Eric Rogers and asked if we'd come to a presentation to the bishops to talk about some of this history so that they could learn to, they wanted to understand the terminology and the language of, you know, why is this happening and who are these, how is this happening? That kind of spun off and for the last, Seriously, probably 10, maybe even 15 years, I started uh, giving presentations every about once every two to three months to the missionaries because the missionaries were working so much with the fundamentalists and the polygamous community members that they were just, their heads were spinning. <laughs> sure. Right? I mean, poor kids. I mean, this will make anybody's head spin, right? Did I tell you where my son served in a mission? Where? Montana. Oh, serious? Are you serious? <laughs> Chances are we'll get him. We'll have him for dinner if he's ever in the Hamilton area. All right. <laughs> How long has he been out? About a year, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where's he at right now? I want to say Shelby. Okay. He's over on the other side of the state, yeah, up way up north. But anyway, I would, we, we use my kitchen window as a whiteboard, and I start putting all of these names up there and then Mustard and, all and I'm doing it by the time it's just a it's a jumbled ball of yarn and in that ball of yarn and I, I this is why I take, do that side story uh, and that ball of yarn is LeBaron right <laughs> right Le, the LeBarons are a fascinating story they're absolutely fascinatingly crazy <laughs> um, and they 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 come out of the Benjamin F. Johnson line, they and and believe that they are direct descendants of Joseph Smith. Okay. Ben, Benjamin Johnson was an adopted son of Joseph Smith, and so they they came out of that line and they believed that that's who they were. So that the priesthood rested with them. And during this nineteen twenty ish thirty, this kind of nebulous <laughs> time, they're also in Mexico. Okay. And they're setting up their own little group or following, Church of the Firstborn. Uh, and Joel LeBaron and Ervil LeBaron uh, are associates of Rulin Allred and Joseph Musser and some of these early polygamists. They're, they're friends with them, very much so. Rulin Allred actually is, uh, Joel LeBaron actually asks Rulin Allred to serve with him in the leadership of their new little group, which Rulin Allred does for a short time. Uh, and then, well, there weren't really a lot of boundaries then, or, or were, were there? Was he on two different councils at the same time? Uh, yeah, oh, kind of. Really? 
Uh, but this is before he was ever part of the council in the A, uh, in the in the Musserite group. Um, but he had those associations, and he let he he didn't leave unnecessarily good terms the LeBarons because he he could see that they were kind of crazy. Um, yeah, I don't want to jump the story, but they killed him, right? Well, yeah, exactly, <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. And, and so that, that's kind of prob- probably part of the reason why, because they had a vendetta against him. Yeah, because they did. They had a vendetta against him. Erville LeBaron, when he finally becomes head of his little group by killing his own brother, <laughs> by having a kill list. Wow. Yeah, I mean, he had Spencer W. Kimball. Spencer on W. Kimball was on his kill list, and the and I don't. This is honestly, I can't track down this as historical fact, but the, but the way that it's talked about in uh, the fundamentalist circles is that Rulin Allred and Spencer W. Kimball were childhood friends, oh. that they knew each other. I don't know how much truth there is to that, but there is a little bit of a back rumor, conspiracy theory, that there was a chance that Spencer W. Kimball might actually show up to Rulin Allred's funeral, and and that that was when they were going to try to go after Spencer W. Kimball, that the LeBarons were going to try to get him, too. Didn't they go after Gerald Peterson, too? Uh, yeah, they had a whole hit list. Yeah. And in fact, he's the leader of another group. Yeah, and so they, yeah, Peterson. Peterson was the leader of Dr. Peterson. Um, they had a whole hit list of people that they went after. And basically, anybody that looked at them sideways <laughs> ended up on the list. I think the last time I read it, Somewhere in around 2010, there was a, a killing down in Mexico that they attributed to the LeBaron hit list. I mean, it... That drug with with a bullet-riddled car? Um, I don't know. No, no, no. I don't know that if that was case? it or not. But anyway, it's... it's they, For lack of a better term, the LeBaron's been hard to kill off. I mean, they, have, they haven't... They, they, I mean, it's still those that hit list is Don't just kind of with the hanging out there. Yeah, here I am making jokes on camera, and I'm probably going to have some sort of fatwa. <laughs> huh. Wow. Okay. So okay. So so this time when he served with Ervil, was it Ervil that asked him, or was it his brother Joel? Jo- Joel. Uh, Joel and Ervil were kind of co. Conspirators, coral heads of their own little priesthood group. Okay. And so, and, but he didn't. He wasn't. Ruling Allred wasn't in Mexico for very long. Okay. Um, uh, and and I may. I'm trying to think of when he was there and and, and associate. I, I you know I honestly I'd need to probably go back and actually look at that to to get my time frame exactly right. There may be somebody out there who ends up watching this and is going to say, uh, Joe's he, he's got his time frame a little bit off on that. Um, but the end result is, is, is that it's Ervil LeBaron's wife, Rena Shinoth, that ends up pulling the trigger on Rulin Allred in his doctor's office in Murray. And that really, that's, that, that killing, almost a little bit like the Joseph Smith murder, really, really solidifies um, the Allred polygamous group around their martyred prophet. Um, it, it gave them an and I don't want to say they didn't have an identity before because they did but it really honestly did kind of give them an, an identity one of the things I wanted to say Rick you mentioned first before even 
uh, camera came on, you mentioned that it's hard to get polygamists uh, on camera. <laughs> and it is. And, and there's reason for it. <laughs> they have a long history of being chased around, arrested, thrown in jails, uh, you know, things like that. They're not super comfortable going on the record. And there are a few crazy ones. Uh, like me, that will be an open book, and, and I know I'm not a polygamist, but I come from a polygamist group. But, um, but it, you know, they, there's a long history of that. You know, when my when my dad and my mom remember holding hands with their grandfathers through the chain link fence of prison, that's not something that goes away in your head. Um, and I remember as a teenager, I thought it'd be funny to play a joke on Dad. Uh, I I called over to my aunt Martha's place, knowing that Dad was there, and uh, I asked for Marvin Jessup. I didn't say his dad there. I said is Marvin Jessup there? Uh, Martha was one of Dad's wives, and I said is Marv there? And she said, May I ask who's calling? And dummy me as a teenager, just it's just stupid to do this. But I, I said, this is Sheriff Prince, who was the, the sheriff at the time. And just silence. And I said, I, I need to talk with Marv. Could you put him, put him on the phone, please? Si- oh, no. I thought it was hilarious. Not funny. It wasn't funny. <laughs> I mean, at the time, I thought it was funny because I'm a dumb teenager, right? But it's not funny because that, I mean, you know, my mom, when she, in the seventh grade, they, the, the Allred family, he got word from a member of the police department that they were going to get raided again. And this is 1955, 56, 57 area. And they just, in a, literally overnight, scattered to the wind. And my mom remembers when a car would come down, if a car ever turned down their driveway, they lived in Polson, Montana. If a car ever turned down their driveway, they would were just scared to death. They didn't know it was friend or foe. So the polygamists have a long history of being shoved down underground, and then they get shoved down underground, and then and and then law enforcement and really super zealous people try to turn them back up and hold them up as trophies to say, "Ha ha, we got them." The 1950s raid in in Short Creek, Arizona, and more recently in the. Uh, you know, the Texas raid um, for the FLDS. It, it, there's this history, and it's hard. It's hard for them to... to, to it's going to take a generation or two for that to die out for, to where people no longer remember that. And even then, you'll have people my age who'll say, well, my dad remembers when. And so they have a really hard time opening up. They're, they're very secretive because of that. And unfortunately, that's a, that's a bad thing. Because when you're secretive, lots of things can happen inside those cultures and groups that need to be brought to light and, and don't because they're so, they've been so maligned for so long. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. I do have one other question. So it seems like Pinesdale is kind of a, another community. How did, how did people end up in Pinesdale? So Pinesdale is what I, dis- yeah, Pinesdale is what I describe as a satellite community of the AUB. It's under the leadership of the AUB that is here in Utah. Um, 
but they are a satellite community. So what happened is when my uh, grandfather, when Rulon Allred in the 1950s, when he sent his families to the four corners, <laughs> uh, he he would go out and visit them, and then you know he, they're essentially living on the you know underground railroad almost. <laughs> you know they're they're on the lamb most of the time. Uh, the letters that they received that they would write back and forth, that the women would write back and forth, would, would show up opened. By the FBI. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they would use, you know, code names and things like that. And that's still, that's, that's dying out a little bit, but it's still kind of there. Um, where people are, you know, they'll keep their maiden name instead of take on the name of their husband if they're a second or a third wife um, to try to make it not look so obvious yeah obvious um but uh so when when Rulon Allred started he started looking for a place started looking for a community a, a place where people could go and live and live in a place of refuge and out of the prying eyes of the FBI and the out of the 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 magnifying glass of Utah uh and so they bought you know, several hundred acres of prime Montana, you know, mountain streams and ponds and fields with a couple of houses on it became known as the ranch in Montana. In 1961, they, they purchased what became Pinesdale. And then here and there, families would move up, build a house, and, and it was a community. It was a united order, and it was set up as that. As a united order, as a place to live where everybody had everything in common. You pooled your resources. There was a granary. There was a butcher shop. There was, you know, it was, a, it was a great place to grow up. My gosh, what a what an incredible place to grow up. Um, the, commu- the sense of community and sense of place was was really unique. I loved it growing up. Um, but that's where that's how Pinesdale came about. And over the years, different members of the AUB or the the, the All Red group would. A family here or there would move up, and the, the community gradually started to grow. And then in 1980, I want to say 81, but I can't remember exact year, they incorporated as an official town. Oh, okay. Very cool. So are there any other groups there? Um, my, well, now there are. <laughs> oh, really? Well, yeah, we haven't even got to the good stuff, Rick. Oh, well, let's go there. <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm only halfway kidding, but... Well, the reason why I ask, because my son's aware of the, the, there's a bunch of polygamists in Pinedale. I think he said they were FLDS. But most, I people, think, most people think, when people think of polygamists, they think of FLDS. Right. They yeah. honestly do. It's because the FLDS have been in the news so much because of the Warren Jeff issues and things right. like that. The, the big difference, honestly, is, you know, if you were to bump into somebody from Pinesdale or the AUB group, you're not going to, you wouldn't be like... You're a fundamentalist, well, aren't you? You're a nerd like me, right? You're yeah, like, oh, are they AUB? Yeah. Are they Peterson? Or are they? <laughs> well, the, the big reason is is they don't dress any different. Right. They're, they're, the, they're, the FLDS do, though. The FLDS do. They, right. they, they dress and look different. You know, they're going to wear the pioneer a little bit like Amish. You're like, oh, there's an Amish or there's a Mennonite or something right, like that. Right. They, they're physically, appearance wise, they look different. Uh, from the way that they dress, so they're a little easier to pick out. 
in, in Montana, we have a Russian Orthodox community, fairly good-sized Russian Orthodox community there in the Bitterroot Valley. And they probably stick out. And, and they stick out because they wear their bonnets and, you, you, oh, there's Russian Orthodox. Um, but most people associate polygamy with FLDS, uh, and the AUB group just, it's, it's not that. Right. And that's why I was asking yeah. if there were other groups, because it, it's really... They just don't know better. It's really AUB there, right? Uh, but are there... Cause, yeah, but within the AUB now, there are starting to be other issues. Oh, okay. So this is this is the, the current state of things. and, and the, the second ex- split? Yeah, there's an, there's been another split. Oh, there has? Yeah, oh, I absolutely. Was just oh, no, really? no, no, 100%. Yeah, there oh, has wow. been another split in 2014. Oh, okay. Um, and it's just like the 51 split. It's gotten pretty ugly. Oh, wow. And it's not geographical. I mean, it is geographical in the sense that the main bulk of the split is happening in Pinesdale. Um, but it's, it's, it's been pretty hard. That, that wonderful little community that I grew up in, that sense of community and sense of place just isn't there anymore. It, I mean, depending on who you talk to. Because in 2014, and again, we'd have to back up and get into, I can try to give you bullet points here, but we'd have to get back up and get into actual, actual doctrinal things that started happening um, previously that, that led down this road to different factions kind of forming within the AUB group. Um, to give you a kind of a, a good idea, when I joined the LDS church, my, my, my mother and father were very much in support of me doing that. I was a wild child anyway. <laughs> well, you know. and I've been surprised because Cody Brown, I know one of his daughters went to Utah State and she wanted to join the LDS Church, but because of the TV show, the LDS Church said no. And so I'm really <laughs> interested because I know in your chapter in, uh, and I wish I would have brought that book because I was going to get you to autograph it, oh. but because uh, I just got it this week. Um, <laughs> Maybe I'll have you stop by my house sure. or something. But anyway, um, they they wouldn't let her join, but they let you join, and you had to meet with President Elder Faust. Yeah. Yes, was he was he in the first presidency at the time? Not at the time, no. Oh, he was just an apostle. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and it was fascinating to hear your account of that. Um, and uh, do you have any insight into why? I wish I could remember what her name was up at Utah State. What, Cody Brown's daughter, why they wouldn't let her versus they let you? Well, I'm not sure that I have insight, but I, um, I know that it's been a bit of a struggle. Because when I first joined uh, the LDS Church, it wasn't easy for me to join. Right. Um, in fact, I was... I, I felt like I wanted to join the church. I don't want to go into that whole story but because there's a whole backstory there. Go read there. the book, right? Yeah, exactly. you got to read the book. But I, I was not welcomed, in fact. Um, a local bishop actually told me to leave, didn't want me there. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a... Visitors there's welcome, it says on our church. <laughs> it's not true. Well, it is true, but there's a there's a Certain history visitors. there. Yeah, there's a history there. There's a history between the polygamists and the church that's that's not a it's not always a a, a good history. Well, and part of that is on both sides. By the way, I'm not. I'm, well, the polygamists I, are to blame is just as much. And I've heard that, especially, and I don't know how long this lasted, but there was a time where the AUB said, "Yeah." 
Go join the LDS church. You know, the go through the temple. Go to the temple. Yeah. They're the bachelor's degree, and then we're the master's yeah, and then, degree. Yeah, and then whatever with the with polygamy. Yeah, and so you know, so the AUB group, their overall philosophy when it comes to the church, at least during the all red years, was that the church and the group. So I, I'll use the group. That's what they call themselves, the group. The church and the group, or a better way to to, to put that would be. Uh, the mother and the father. Oh. Church being the mother, the group being the father, group being the priesthood, church being the organization, the mother, the organization. Oh, that's interesting. That those two things are actually meant to be together. They're supposed to be together. So right now, the way I grew up and what I was taught is that those two things are separated. That's an out-of-order situation. And eventually when the Jesus... church is out of order. Well, not, not just the church. The, the priesthood too. The group too. Mm-hmm. And the reason they're out of order is because they're separated. It's like a divorce. Okay. You know, mom, and dad, mom and dad need to get back together. And eventually that will happen. That, that's, that's the way I grew up. I, nightly. Nightly our family prayers involved praying for the reunification of the priesthood in the church to open the temple doors to the worthy and righteous saints. Which is Who are the worthy and righteous saints? Us. <laughs> the, the, the polygamists. And this is why there's a temple recommend question. Do you affiliate with any... I'm trying to remember the exact term. Did, yeah, do you affiliate but, with any uh, offshoot? I, I'm, I can't remember. I can't remember the exact term. But the idea is, are, are you associated with polygamists? Yes. Yeah. Because you shouldn't be. Or, or yeah, and, and this is what I mean. Yeah, the right polygamous group was sending people into the church to go and go to the temple and receive their endowments, and then and then come back. Because you didn't have a temple. Because they they didn't have a temple. Uh, they they weren't receiving their endowments. There wasn't an endowment now, They right? do now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that started in 1978. In 78. It didn't start in 78, but that's what kicks it off. And 78 is the quote unquote the black revelation. Oh. Where according to the polygamists, the church lost the priesthood. Because we let blacks be ordained. Because the church always had a little bit of the priesthood, just not the fullness of the priesthood. Because of polygamy. Yeah, because of polygamy. So now all of a sudden, church lost the priesthood. Because we can't have blacks be members. Exactly. So that, that pre, those priests, the priesthood that was in the church was then now picked up by the... All red group. So they don't, do they still want to reunite? Uh, depending on who you talk to. Okay. Um, there's different factions within, and that started, that really, the different factions really honestly started around, it's that 1978 revelation that, that starts to unify. That you have the rule in all red murder in 1977. Then a year later you have the, the, the 1978 revelation. revelation. And so the... The all red group is really going through it. Yeah, they've the outside forces that snowball. Well, and I've heard that you know, following the seventy eight revelation, there were a lot of LDS members who were like, "I don't accept this. I'm going to go join with the polygamists, different polygamists." Yes, yeah, yep, yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, a lot of people didn't want to accept the the seventy eight revelation. Like, oh, I don't think we want to do that. 
But that really codified the all red group. But oddly enough, you know, they're they're now torn what to do what to do. Like they had been sending people to leave to, to go and join the church secretly and and then come back to the to the to the group. And now suddenly they're like there's no church to go to. You don't. There's no temple to go to. The black man has defiled the temple. What a terrible thing to say, but yeah. oh, I know. Um, and so, amen to the priesthood of that man. Amen to the priesthood of the church. The church no longer has any priesthood. And so now the group is stuck. the The already group is stuck with well, what do they what do they do? How do they what do they do with the endowment? And so in 1981, 18, 1981 um, they received their own revelation to go ahead and start performing temple ceremonies and uh, performing the endowment. And sort of an endowment house. Kind uh, of it, well, at the time, there was no sort of endowment house. They were literally doing it in their basements. Oh, really? They would get together and they would secretly have the endowment ceremony with each other and then they'd put on their the long garment because that was another way that the church lost the priesthood too is they shortened up the garment right you know the church has done lots of things that have negated their priesthood according to the uh, polygamous groups um, and so they they started doing that but oddly enough it's that it's that coalescing that also leads some people to start to say well I thought that we were just living polygamy, that we were, we were using the church organization, staying close to the eaves, underneath the eaves of the church, and that we're just living polygamy. That's the only thing that's differentiating us. And now all of a sudden, the, the AUB group is now starting to take on more and more and more. And you go back and you read talks by Rulon Allred, he'll, he'll say things like, um, I don't have any keys outside of other than the keys of trying to keep alive polygamy. That's not the case anymore post-1978. They so re- polygamy, priesthood, yep. because of blacks. Yep, blacks in the priesthood. And, and so th- those are really the two well, main. And I think President Kimball denounced the Adam-God. Well, yeah, the Adam-God doctrine is something that had been... Denounced off and on by forever, ever since Brigham Young. <laughs> it was fought over in Brigham Young's day. I mean, even Brigham Young and John Taylor didn't see eye to eye on that one. <laughs> um, but so that's a, those are areas where you, I would call those theological differences, where, uh, where the, the AUB group believes in the Adam God doctrine, the church doesn't, from an official doctrinal difference. But as far as, I, I, Somebody in the group would never say that the church lost their priesthood because they don't teach the Adam-God doctrine. They wouldn't say that? No. Where the church lost their priesthood is blacks in the priesthood, shortening of the garment, changing of the garment, and the changing of the temple ceremonies. That's where they lost their priesthood. Okay. And so that's those type of things, those... So I end up joining the church in the early 1990s. That's not that far removed. You know, it's 10, 15 years, 15 years removed from the 1978 revelation. And so I had to go through the process. It was quite a process for me to join the church. How long um, did it take? It took about, took about seven or eight months. When I was not welcomed in the, by the bishop, I said, well, fine, I'm going to go somewhere where somebody will 
you know, well, somebody will help me out, you know, try to join the church. Um, but so that was kind of an interesting era. But what starts happening in the AUB group through the 19, post Rulin Allred. Owen Allred, his younger brother, takes over. He's the most senior member of the council. During the, the 1980s and 90s, there's some things that really start to shift mentally, doctrinally, uh, in, in the AUB group, where they really start to separate themselves out from the church. They're not, they still are not just like shunning the church. It, it's a pretty good JV team if you have to, but it's not the, certainly not the varsity team. It's not God's chosen people. But there's, there starts to become this separation. Whereas underneath Ruin Allred, for the most part, he really, as much as the church would say, no, 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 you're not part of us, he would kind of like, oh, yes, we are. <laughs> We're going to stay right here. Uh, and they didn't really organize a whole lot. But post-1978, they really start to organize. Um, and then in, uh, when Lemoyne Jensen takes over in 2005, that's where the real issues started to crop up. And it wasn't because of Lemoyne Jensen that he was some sort of bad person necessarily. But what had happened is you grow up in the, in the polygamous group and you are, you're taught the seniority just like you, you are in the church, right? Everybody knows that the next prophet of the church, if he's alive when President Nelson dies, is going to be Dallin H. Oaks. Right. Everybody knows that because they know that he's the most senior member. Well, we knew that too. Growing up in the in the in the AUB group, we we were told we were taught the same things. Our priesthood lessons and our Sunday school lessons were taught the same way. Here's who our apostles are. We called them council members. Here's who our council members are, and here's what their seniority is. And you know, on yearly conferences and things like that, you'd get pictures. Most, a lot of people had pictures of the council in their house, and oftentimes they were lined up in seniority to show so that people knew. And then all of a sudden, in 2005, or prior to 2005, before Owen Allred dies, he decides to appoint his successor. Owen did. Owen did. And he decides to jump over the top of three different people to appoint his successor. And he appoints Lemoyne Jensen. Now, it wasn't Lemoyne Jensen was a bad guy, but this is, this is when I started to get involved from a historical perspective. My dad and I had a really close relationship. My dad was on the priesthood council. And happened to be so one of he was an apostle then. Yeah, he was one of those council so members. The son of an apostle. I'm the son of the I'm the son of an apostle as well. Okay. My wife is my wife you'll get a kick out of this. My wife, her dad was CIA. Oh. So and then so we like to joke that uh, the daughter of a spy and the son of a polygamous leader somehow <laughs> ended up getting married. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, my father was one of those members of the council who was more senior to the person who got appointed. So I'm not, I, by this time, I'm not even part of the group. It does, I'm like, I have no bone in this. I literally don't. But other than I'm a historical nerd, and I love to read, and I love to research, and I love particular religious history, and, and by now I'm a history teacher anyway, and I'm starting to poke around the edges, and, and not even just the edges, but I'm starting to do deep dives into all of this stuff. And I went to my dad and I said, you guys got a problem. And he, I remember my dad saying, oh, you don't know. And I said, Dad, 
you guys, you, you jumped your own ship. Organizationally, you jumped your own ship. And, and dad was one of those guys, he was glad that he wasn't one. <laughs> and so were we, by the way. We're like, oh, please don't let dad be the guy. Um, but, but I saw problems, and I started talking to my dad about them. I was like, this is, you guys are going to have a problem. Because, because of the skipping of scenery? Because of the skipping. I said, what you've, what you've done, essentially, is you've now opened it up. It's now going to be up to politics and so, politicking. And so you created a succession crisis. Yeah, you, it, that's exactly right. And, but my dad, by the time Owen Allred died and Lemoyne Jensen took over, Two, two of the three people who had been skipped over the top of died. Oh. So the Lord took care of them. <laughs> right? But my dad was still in the way. But my dad's a good foot, foot soldier, too. He, was, he really honestly was. And so he wasn't necessarily fine with it because he found out backhanded. They did it secretly. He didn't even know. Huh. He didn't even know. He found out second hand that that this had happened he was not happy with it but he was he, he swallowed his pride and said okay and i i was like i said dad what are you doing i'm not telling you you have to go try to vie for the for the head of the priesthood but this is a problem you're you're creating a problem that's going i don't know when it's going to manifest itself but it's going to manifest itself because you now have instituted a leadership crisis. Because what happens next? And who's next? We, we, you don't know. And at the time, my dad didn't think it was that big a deal. But it manifested itself in 2014 when Lemoyne Jensen then once again jumped over the top of Marvin Jessup and appointed somebody who was down the line. And, and then it just went... And is that what happened in Pinesdale? That's where the split is? Yeah, that's where the split really happened. And it wasn't so much that uh, the people in Pinesdale wanted Marv Jessup to be the next head of the priesthood. That wasn't it at all. What they were, they were like, hey, what's going on? This is like, and so a, a, a new doctrine was born, honestly. A new doctrine was born. Owen Allred instituted the birth of a new doctrine of. You, you can, you, you know, it's up to the head of the priesthood to appoint his successor if he so chooses. So that's really where the, the 2014 just kind of blows up, especially in Pinesdale, as people just go like, this isn't right. I called one of the local bishops. Um, my, my brother called me and he said, you're not going to believe what just happened. And he, I said, okay, what's going on? He says, uh, Lynn Thompson was just appointed head of the group, head of the priesthood to secede, to secede Lemoyne. And Lemoyne wasn't dead yet. And I was like, hang on a second. I said, that's kind of weird. That, and he's down the line and skipped over the top of Marv Jessup again. And the next phone call I made, Rick, this is a true story. This is a 100% true story. The next phone call I made after I got off the phone with my brother was to the local bishop. And I said, Bishop, this is the Bishop of the Ward that encompasses Pinesdale. And they had already, remember I told you, that they had already been dealing with little ones and twosies. Yeah. 
And I said, Bishop, there's about to be an absolute flood. Of people joining Yeah, the because a dam just broke. Oh. And he says, what do you mean? And he knew some of the history. And I said, let me tell you what just happened. And I said, I'm telling you right now that you are probably, I can't remember what night I was talking to him. I think it was a Thursday night. It was a midweek night. And I said, I'm just telling you, I want you to tell, I want you to be prepared. You might want to call the state president. You guys might want to talk about this because a dam just broke. And there is going to be an absolute flood of people in your ward. An absolute flood of polygamists in your ward. And he said, I remember his words, he said, he said, bring them on. <laughs> and, then he, and then he jokingly says, the Lord works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? And we had a good chat about that, but it was. And the Corvallis Ward is what encompasses the, the uh, Pinesdale community. And the Corvallis Ward grew so big, so fast, in, uh, from 2014 to about 17, that they had to split. There's, a, now, there's now two wards. Wow. That's how, how many people came out of the, just, the dam broke in 2014. But it didn't break all the way because some people stayed and some people refused to be part of what was what was going on in the AUB and they split off and formed they, their own they little have group. A new name? Yeah, remember I talked about nicknames? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were first called the Three O'Clockers. Three O'Clockers? Yeah, because they decided to ha- start having their meetings at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> so we jokingly called them the Three O'Clockers. Uh, they now have completely split off. They met in the same building, same chapel, same everything. Um, but now they've completely split off in the last couple of years, and they're, they are a completely different organization. They, they again, nickname-wise, they call themselves the Second Ward. It's a little <laughs> bit reminiscent of what happened down in the FLDS with the Timpson split in the 80s. Is that the Centennial Park? Split? Centennial Park, yeah. 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 I really want to get somebody from that group. Do you know anybody? <laughs> from, oh, I don't. Because there are a lot of Jessups in the FLDS group. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's lots of them. So, you know, when I was, I don't know if I wrote about this in, my, in, the, in the book, but when I was uh, going to North Idaho playing basketball up there, uh, I actually took a trip to the, to the Grand Canyon. Me and my cousin took a trip to the Grand Canyon. We stopped off in Short Creek. This, is, this would be about 1990, 1991. And I didn't know anybody. I'd never been down there. I just stopped off and we knocked on the door and I said, hey, I'm a Jessup. Can you point me to one of my relatives? And this lady, this older lady says, she jokingly says, oh, that's funny. Who's your dad? And I said, my dad's Marvin Jessup. And she goes, oh, my gosh, well, you're going to need to go two doors down and you're going to find your aunt so-and-so. It's your, it's your dad's sister. Um, but they'd been, they'd been separated for so many years, but they were so nice, uh, the, the community. When we went through there in, in 19, early 1990s, I went through there early 2000s, and they wouldn't even, I couldn't even talk to anybody. Yeah, that's why I hear. Yeah, that's why I was that, surprised to hear. Yeah, and my, my dad, when his, uh, his sisters died, wasn't even allowed to go to the funeral. Oh, that's terrible. Wow, that's terrible. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Joe Jessup, the grandson of Ruin Allred. In our next conversation, we're going to talk about the Adam-God theory. And yes, we are definitely going to open up a can of worms. That Adam is the literal, physical, and spiritual father of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and that Mary is one of God's wives. 
So it's Adam and Mary who get together that end up having Jesus Christ in the Immaculate Conception, or if you put it that way, the not-so-Immaculate Conception. (laughs) Would we... Oh, this is a can of worms. Um, I I was just talking about... I'm trying to remember... I just talked to Todd Compton about this, um, because we were talking a little bit about polyandry. Would Mary be polyandrous since she was married to Joseph and Adam? If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks.